Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at the tail end of this chapter, uh, beginning at verse 32, and we're going to go all the way into chapter 5, all the way to verse 11 today. Um, and it's interesting, whenever uh, you're out as a pastor and you try to find somebody to, to take your place, you often give them an opportunity to um, pick whatever they want to preach about. And the last time that I was out, uh, Brandon filled in for me, and he decided that he would just continue on with the book of Acts uh, in my place, which is rare because the other times that I've been out in the coming up on four years in December and in those times nobody else has ever taken me up on the on the passage that we've been in and so Brandon said yeah I'll do I'll do Acts it was somewhere in Acts 2 I think and then last week he's like okay I'll do homecoming for you where are you in the book of Acts and I said well uh, we're in Acts we're gonna be in Acts 4 uh, 32 and going into 511 and he goes isn't that the one where the people die for lying and so yeah, it's the one. He goes, I'm gonna pick something else. <laughs> I'm like, what? That's so homecoming. That's absolute. That'd be perfect for homecoming. And he goes, no, nah, I think I, I think I'm gonna go with something else. And so that is what we're going to be uh, studying today. Uh, it is a very interesting. I love the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts has so many interesting stories in it. Uh, so many different um, ways that the church shines brightly. And then there are so many different ways that God shows us just how holy and how serious he takes his holiness uh, throughout the whole book. And so um, I hope you will uh, enjoy our study through this book as much as I enjoy teaching it. Uh, so before we jump into it, let's pray together and then we'll get into Acts 4.32 through 5.11. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the opportunity that we have to come together and to sing praises to your name and we have the opportunity to open your your scriptures and um, we get to see the seriousness of sin we get to see uh, just how holy you are uh, but we also get to see the beauty of the church we get to see their generosity uh, we get to see the importance of the resurrection and i pray that we would uh, have our eyes open to the truths that are all through this passage and that we would apply them well to our lives. Lord, uh, I ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, Acts 4, 32 uh, through 511. We're going to read, we're going to begin with 32 to 37. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power... The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what we have just read in verse 32 
might be the greatest miracle that we will read in the entire book of Acts. This bit right here, it says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. That might be the greatest miracle we will ever see in the entire book of Acts. Now obviously I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but anytime you get a group of people together, it's extremely difficult to be of one heart and mind about anything. And the fact that this group of people is the church doesn't really change anything. Anyone that's ever served on a committee, can I get an amen about that? That's right. When you get a group of people together, everyone has an opinion. Everyone has their preference. And unfortunately, because we're people, everyone also has a sin nature that ends up wanting everything to go their way. Everybody. Now for the church, because of salvation in Christ and the Holy Spirit living inside of us, it's released us from our slavery to our sin nature. But that doesn't mean that we don't still have to do battle with it on a regular basis. So just because we're not slaves to it anymore doesn't mean that we don't battle with it and it doesn't mean that we don't give into it on a regular basis. And so with every individual struggling with their own sin nature, the more people that you add to that bunch, the more difficult it's going to be to get people on the same page. And at this point in the church's history, there's probably more than 10,000 people involved with the church. That's an assumption, of course. We don't know exactly how many people uh, are involved, but it's an educated guess that comes from the fact that if you go back to verse 4 in this chapter, Luke points out that there's about 5,000 men who've become a part of the church. And most of those men were probably married. Okay, so most of them, if they're if they're all married, roughly five thousand, you're talking about ten thousand people. Um, if you count the women who are part of the church who weren't married, so you're then expanding even more. So ten thousand is probably a low estimate, and then if you put children in there as well, then we're talking easily exceeding ten thousand people. And Luke points out here at the end of chapter four of the book of Acts, that all 10,000 of these people were united in their thinking and their affection. What is it that could have possibly brought these people who were from all over the world? Remember, in Acts chapter 2, most of these people came to faith after Peter preached at Pentecost. All right, so these are people who are not only from Jerusalem, these are people who have come to faith from all over the world, right? Joseph Barnabas is originally from Cyprus, so he's not part of this group originally. So you've got people who are from all over the world, all different ages, and it says that they were of one heart and one mind. What could possibly bring them into this unity? And the, it's the fact that they were united by Jesus and they were united by the mission of God. They were united by Jesus and they were united by the mission of God. Verse 33 says the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace 
was on them all. The resurrection is the center of the Christian faith. The res- everything hinges on the resurrection. By saying that the apostles were sharing about the resurrection, Luke is saying that they were talking about the entire gospel. Everything hinges on the resurrection. The gospel is so meaningful to these people that they were able to put aside everything that made them different to come together and be united in one heart and one mind. Just think about the differences that we have in this room. Most of us are from this area, more or less. And would you say that on any given Sunday we are united in heart and mind? Why are you laughing? Faith in Jesus united 10,000 people from all over the world. They were of one heart and one mind. These folks understood what mattered. And look at what it did for their community. It says there wasn't a needy person among them because people were selling their property to take care of those who didn't have enough to care for themselves. And this is the second time in the book of Acts that Luke has pointed out this type of generosity And there's a few things to point out about this level of giving. I've mentioned a few of these before the first time that uh, that this came up. But since it came up again, let's talk about it again. The first thing that we need to understand about this level of giving is that this is not a type of Christian communism, socialism, or communal living. All right? It's not. In my preparation for this morning, I I read that many folks have tried to use passages like this from Acts to make arguments for communism, to make arguments for a socialist lifestyle. And we're not seeing that here. And the reason why we're not seeing that is because, number one, nobody is forced to sell their property. All right. And communism and socialism, people are made to do that. Right? They're trying to get everybody on the same level. And that's not what's happening here. No one is made to sell anything. The people who have more than they need are voluntarily choosing to sell their stuff so that people who have less than they need are taken care of. The apostles aren't making anyone do this. The church sees the need and they realize they have what it takes to meet the need and they take the steps to make it happen and it's all done on a voluntary basis. And although the church, we see here, they, they do enjoy a greater sense of community than we do. As Americans, we have a tendency to be more individualistic than the church in Jerusalem was, flat out. They spent more time together on a daily basis. They worshiped together more. They prayed together more. They fellowshiped together more. We have a tendency to be more individualistic in our culture. We go to work. We barely talk to people at work. We go home. We push the button on the garage door. It shuts. And we don't speak to another soul unless it's like this until the next day. Right? But 
they, they were a little bit more engaged in each other's life. But even so, this is not communal living and it's not advocating for communal living. This isn't everybody selling everything that they own and then throwing everything into one big pot and just saying, come on in here, sell everything you've got and we'll give you what you need as you need it. The reason we know this is that there is still private ownership of property within the church after this happens. All right. When the Apostle Paul comes on the scene and he starts writing his letters to the churches, the, the letters that will become part of the New Testament, he's going to say hello uh, in the book of Romans. He's going to say hello to the church that meets in Prisca and Aquila's home. He can't say hello to the church that meets in Prisca and Aquila's home if they don't own a home. All right. He says hello to people that meet in other people's houses. And you can't say hello to people that meet in other people's houses if it's a communal living and nobody owns a home. So this is not communal living. So it's not communism. It's not socialism. It's not communal living. Okay. Another thing to consider about this level of generosity is that there has to be a balance between the level of giving and common sense. Okay, what we're seeing here is people with extra stuff selling off their excess so that those who have less than they need would be able to survive. It would not make sense to say to the apostles, these people don't have a place to live, so I'm going to sell my house and give them the money so that these people will be able to buy a house and have a place to live. And oh wait, now I don't have a place to live. Like, what, what problem have you served? You've just passed the problem to yourself. And that doesn't make any sense. If people were to do that, they haven't solved the problem. They've just transferred the problem. In certain cases, not in many cases, in certain cases, God has called people to sell everything they own and give that money to the poor. Right? I'm sure you've probably heard of stories like that. You've got uh, the case of the rich young ruler in the, in the Gospels. Jesus knew that this man had an idol that was his money, that was his luxury. And in order to untangle him from that, Jesus called him to sell it all and to give it all away. But I don't think that he calls everyone to that. I do think that he calls some of us to that. Right? He calls some of us to sell everything and go overseas. But he does call everyone to be generous with our excess. All right? Every Christian is called to be generous with what they've been given. All of us. Across the board. No one escapes this command. And in our culture, we often have more excess than we think. I don't know about you, but I've never met a, uh, an American who doesn't think they're broke. Right? Everybody's poor. But most of us have a coffee habit that is excessive. right? Or something along those lines. Maybe it's not coffee. You're like, well, I don't drink coffee. Okay, a tea habit then. All right? Maybe it's your McDonald's tea. All right? Maybe it's not coffee. Maybe it's tea. All right? Maybe you have an excessive grocery bill every single month. Maybe you have an excessive entertainment budget. 
Well, I don't have, I just have cable. Well, that's excessive. You don't need cable, right? Do you have cable, Netflix, Hulu, Voodoo, Juju? I don't know. All of them, right? $15 here, $10 here, $30 here, $80 here. You just keep going. You've got all these subscriptions. Maybe you have more house or land than you need. I was listening to a pastor. He was talking about, he's like, well, some people, instead of having you know, two houses so they don't fall into this having excess, they just have one really big house. Right? I don't have, I don't have two houses. I have one big house. Right? That's excess. Maybe you have more cars than you have people in your family that can drive them. And maybe you're not a car. Well, and there's always somebody, well, I don't, I don't like cars. Maybe it's a boat. Maybe it's an ATV. You know, like, stop, make, try, stop trying to dance around it, right? You're, you, don't be the lawyer when Jesus said to love your neighbor and he wants to exegete the word neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Right? The person sitting next to you. Love that person. Right? What could be an excess? Anything that you have that you don't need. You don't absolutely need. Right? We just have to go on that vacation every year. Twice a year, three times a year, four times a year. We got to celebrate the 300 gift-giving holidays that get on the calendar all the time. Right? We need the newest phone. Right? This one's a year old. I can't possibly take that anymore. That one's got to be traded in, get the newest one, the newest iPad, the newest computer. I've got to have a new rug, a new picture, a new tool. Right? We all have excess, don't we? I mean, pick your poison. But I guarantee that we all have something that we spend our excess money on. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. Okay? I'm not. But there is something wrong with spending all our money on all that stuff and then having a need pop up in the church and then looking at the needy person and saying, oh man, I wish I could help, but I don't have any money. I'll pray for you. That's a problem. Of course you don't have any money. You've already spent it all on yourself. We had a situation. I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. We had a situation like that happen, happen when we were church planning down in near, we were near Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Kelly and I, I was, I was working full time. Kelly was working part time. Mom's watching the kids. We were doing everything in our power to make ends meet and we weren't making a ton of money. And I was spending all my part time after work doing the church plant. And I remember coming home and Kelly's in tears. And she's in tears because she, Chloe needed some new underwear and she didn't have the money to buy it. And so I'm like, we'll find the money. We'll do the best. We'll, 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 we'll figure it out. And so I'm kind of disheartened by all this. We're, we're working hard, doing everything that we can. And I go to church the next week and I'm disheartened. And someone in the church says, you look down, what's going on? And I explain the situation. We're working as hard as we can, doing all that we know to do to make ends meet. And this is the situation that we're finding ourselves in. And this guy goes, man, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. Now, that man had gone on two vacations that year. He had just bought a brand new iPad, or, uh, MacBook, $1,500 computer. 
He had all the new eye technology, new iPhone, new iPad, all of it. But he's going to pray for me as I had a need that could be met by selling any one of his eye things. And yet he was going to pray. It's hard to hear that someone's going to pray for you when you have a physical need that they could meet in the church by selling off one of their indulgences. Right? I don't begrudge any of those things for him. He worked hard for those things. But this is the church. Right? We were struggling to make ends meet. And he was going to pray for me instead of helping to meet my need. Right? This goes back to the James passage where it says when you see someone in need and you tell them go, be well, be fed, what good is that? What good is it? Well, these people didn't do that. They saw the need and they sold what was necessary to help people in their need. The church took action to make sure that the need was met. And one of the generous people that stood out to Luke was a man named Joseph who was a Levite from Cyprus. And this guy must have been one of Luke's heroes in the, face, uh, in the faith because he's going to be mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts. So I mean, if someone's writing a story and your name comes up 23 times in their story, I think you've made an impact on them in some way, shape, or form. And so he's made an impression on Luke because Luke is keeping up with his ministry throughout his life. And apparently this man has also made an impact on the apostles because they've given him a nickname. Right? They called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Right? How cool is that? How cool is that that the, the apostles give you the nickname son of encouragement? I mean, if a group of spiritually mature leaders were to watch you closely... Right? They watch your life, they watch your ministry, they hear what comes out of your mouth, they see what, what you do with what you say you believe, and based on what they saw from your life on a regular basis, what would your nickname be? Would it be anywhere close to son or daughter of encouragement? Deliverer of godly insight. Bringer of joyfulness. Bastion of generosity. Anywhere close to that? Do you think you would come anywhere in the vicinity? Or, or would it be more in the realm of Captain Grumblepants? Complainer extraordinaire. Apathetic owl, bringer of meh. Or Karen, let me speak to your manager. What would your nickname be? <coughs> If spiritually mature people watched your life, I hope that we could all be closer to the Barnabas range. As we continue on in Acts, we're going to see that he invests in the lives of younger believers in chapter 9. He has a glad heart in chapter 11, and he's going to encourage believers to remain faithful to the Lord there as well. 
He's humble and trustworthy in chapters 13 and 14. And he's patient with the imperfections of others in chapter 15, which Paul's going to discuss in Colossians 4 and in 2 Timothy 4. But here, in chapter 4, Luke emphasizes Barnabas's generosity. He sells a field and brings the proceeds to the apostles and he lays it at their feet so that it can be distributed as any has need. May we all strive to have a heart like Barnabas. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses for the early church. Luke is going to provide a stark contrast to the unity he just told us about and the heart of Barnabas uh, in the next two people that he's going to introduce in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. Let's read about them. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You've not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. So one thing that we should respect about Luke's account is that he does not ignore the faults of the early church. That's one of the things that should make the Bible compelling to people who question its accuracy and its authenticity. All right, many people believe that the Bible's been changed to make it more palatable, I guess. But if, if you're going to change things, why would the apostles choose to leave in all the bad stuff about themselves? All right, Paul doesn't always shine the brightest in, in the letters. You don't, Peter, obviously doesn't always look the best. None of them look really good as they all abandon Jesus. And yet all of that is still in the scriptures. And then you have the authors of the Gospels. You have Luke. You have Paul who leave all this awful stuff in here that does not make the church look very good. You've got the church at Corinth was awful. Absolutely terrible. And yet, all this stuff is still left in here. Why would you choose to leave all that in here if you were altering the story to make yourself look better? It doesn't make any sense. And so, in this, we have two people who have decided to lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead where they stand. That's not a good look. Does that seem more palatable to you? I mean, if anything, to me, this story is difficult to process. Be honest. Show of hands, 
who thinks that the capital punishment that occurs here for lying is extreme? Okay. Some of you. All right. I do. I think it's extreme. And the reason I think it's extreme is because I'm not used to dying when I lie. I try not to make a habit of lying, but surprise, surprise, it's happened before. I've lied before. In this story, we have Ananias and his wife Sapphira who have schemed together to sell a piece of property and instead of giving all the proceeds to the church, they decided to keep all that for themselves. Now, they didn't have to sell the property at all. We've already established that. All right, this is again a thing where we see that it's not communism. Like They're not made to sell it. The apostles didn't make them do it. Peter said as much. You didn't have to sell it at all. And they didn't have to give all the proceeds to the church. No one compelled to do, do either. The issue here is they wanted to appear to be holy. They wanted to appear to be righteous. And maybe they were looking to get a cool nickname like Barnabas did. Like Ananias, seller of cool property and giver of things. But they didn't want to actually put in the work or make the total sacrifice to be holy, righteous, and generous. They wanted to look the part without doing the work. They were hypocrites. They were hypocrites which were condemned like the Pharisees. The, the difference is though, the Pharisees put in the work. But these people, they didn't want to do the work. Ananias and Sapphira, they only wanted to appear generous, and so they kept part of the proceeds. And we're not told how Peter is made to understand what was going on. We can only assume that it was the Holy Spirit that informed him what was going on in Ananias' heart. But Peter asks why Satan has filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back parts of the land, the proceeds of the land. Right? It was his to keep or to give away. Right? He could have sold it, kept it all, kept it, not sold it at all. Whatever he wanted to do, it was his to do with it. But the Holy Spirit's not going to stand here and be lied to about it. Peter makes it clear. Ananias and Sapphira did not lie to the church. They lied to God. And when Ananias heard those words, he dropped dead. As you might expect, great fear came on those who heard about this. Sure. Yeah, I would think so. If you found out the last person that lied died on the spot, how much are you going to think about your next lie? You going to question it a little bit? Double think it a little? Right? As you're hitting the send button on your taxes, you might just go back through and double check and make sure you got all your deductions right. Three hours later, Ananias' wife comes in and Peter confronts her. He gives her a chance to come clean. He says, did you sell the land for this price? And she lies, just as she's worked out with her husband. And she suffers the same consequences. She dropped dead at his feet. And if you're like me, if you find this response by the Holy Spirit severe, we need to remember forever and always that God is holy, righteous, and just. Always and forever. 
And if we thought correctly about sin every time we committed sin, we would realize that we deserve exactly what Ananias and Sapphira got every single time that we sin. Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's everybody in this room. And in Romans 6, 23a, he says, The wages of sin is death. So this is not extreme. This is God keeping His promise immediately. There's nothing extreme about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. The only thing that is confusing is why don't I die every time I sin? Why aren't we struck down every time we sin? As I was just looking around, I mean, I, I tend to be a procrastinator. So as I'm supposed to be doing work, I tend to do anything but that. And so I was looking around on YouTube and uh, this thing about uh, a question that was asked uh, to R.C. Sproul came up and I thought it applied well to this. So it's procrastination, but it's God-driven procrastination, okay? So a few years ago, there was a panel discussion at a conference, and people were allowed to write in, and they're asking questions to this panel. And someone wrote in, and they asked the question about the extreme nature of God's penalty for Adam and Eve in the garden. This was the question, and R.C. Sproul is going to answer it. He says, the question was, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? All right, so it's kind of the same response that we would have if we think that them dying immediately is severe. And this is his response. This is R.C. Sproul, Sproul's response. He says, time out. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe? This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse supplied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come for I'm sorry, would come for quite some time, would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe if we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is? That's the question, isn't it? End quote. What's wrong with you people to think that we have anything to say about the severity of the punishment for our sin when we were made from the dirt? And we rebel willingly against a holy and righteous God. What's wrong with you people 
That's what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. If you think about the situation of Ananias and Sapphira from the proper perspective of God's holiness and the belittlement of that holiness when they sin, the right question is not, why did he act so severely and so immediately when they lied? The right question is, why does he show me grace when I sin? Why does he show me grace? Why do I get to live one more second when I lie? Why do I get to live one more second when I act out in selfishness? Why do I get to live one more second when I gossip? Why do I get to live one more second when I succumb to lust? Why do I get to live one more second when I contemplate revenge? When I indulge myself in my anger, my desire for wrath, why do I get to live? When the scripture is clear that this equates to murder in my heart, why do I get to live? Why do I get to live when Ananias and Sapphira died? And I don't have an answer to those questions. But God, forgive me. Forgive us all for any inkling in me that thinks I deserve anything better than death when I sin. God, forgive me for thinking I deserve anything more than what they got. I don't deserve a second chance. I don't deserve another moment. Seeing what happened to this husband and wife here in Acts 5 should remind us of the nature of God and it should make us look introspectively at our lives and it should drive us to our knees in repentance when we find pockets of sin in our life that we so casually overlook. When we find these respectable sins, sins that nobody calls out on because they sin like that too. When God is so clear that it is wrong and damnable. And yet we casually keep doing it. As though it did not cause the Son of God to die on the cross. And we need more conviction. We need somebody else to call us out on it. We need just a little bit more before we will repent and before we will turn away from it. When we sin, we should cry out, God, forgive me. Not, why was this so severe? God, forgive me for belittling your name. Forgive me for presuming upon your grace and your love. I'll just sin again. He'll forgive me anyway. God, forgive me for hurting people. There's no such thing as a victimless crime when it comes to sin. It always hurts someone. Forgive me for not obeying your commands. Forgive me. 
And after this, we should be filled with gratitude that we have been forgiven through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Right? Our sin cost the Son of God. It made Him come down from heaven, from glory, to stand before sinful men, to be beaten and spit upon, and to be nailed upon a cross only to take the wrath of God that you and I deserve so that we can be reconciled to the Father. And all that's done through grace. By grace we have been saved. And we should be grateful for that. And this grace should then drive us to generosity. Application. Right? That is what united these people. That is what made them generous with their stuff. So are you a generous person? If not, why not? Now, you've been given so much. Right? So much in Christ. And so that means that we should be open-handed with everything that we have. For most people, if we're not generous, it's two things. And they might sound kind of like the same thing, but it's not. Selfishness and fear. Alright? Either we're selfish, we want everything for ourselves, or we're afraid. We're afraid if we're generous, we won't have enough. That, that sounds like selfishness, but it's not the same thing. A selfish person just wants more and more and more. A fearful person is afraid that if they don't have more and more and more, they might go without. So it's kind of the same thing, but it's not. So you're probably one of those two things if you're not generous. You're probably either afraid or you're selfish. Are you a generous person? If not, then that means you need to get refocused on the gospel. For Christians, we should be the most generous people on the planet because we have an understanding of what God gave to us. Number two, do you take sin lightly? Do you take your sin lightly? God takes all sin seriously. Our sin required the death of God on the cross to atone for our sin. That's how serious he took it. That's what was necessary for our restoration. Do you take sin seriously? Not dying immediately when we sin gives us a chance to repent. Do you keep a short list of your sins? Is there someone that you need to ask forgiveness of? As a church, we need to be generous. We need to be as sinless as possible, constantly moving towards Christ, constantly being made more and more in His image through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I pray that we would be of one heart and one mind, focused on the gospel, focused on the mission, 
and constantly moving towards that as we push the darkness back in this world. Let's pray together. Father, as we go out of this place here today, I pray that your words would sink deep. That it would be eye-opening and heart-changing as we see the generosity of the church, as we see them come together in one heart and one mind as they served the least of these within their, their own walls. And God, as we see the severity of the consequences of sin in Ananias and Sapphira, I pray that we would be aware of just how you look at the sin in our life. That we wouldn't be people who minimize sin, that we wouldn't be people who casually think that it's not a big deal. That we would be looking at it and rooting it out at all times. Lord, help us to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit and the help of the church. We need each other. Lord, I ask you all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.